I V M. His glory purifies the three worlds, traveling higher and higher by the paths of generosity, strength, and piety. Just as from the dense matted locks of Shiva run the many white streams of the Ganga. The lines that you've just heard were carved into a great sandstone pillar, which was once crowned with a carved lion. This was a pillar which could tell you some very interesting stories. You see, it was ordered carved in the third century BCE by Ashoka Maurya, who was the dominant ruler of the Indian subcontinent at the time. Six hundred years after him, when Samudragupta dominated the subcontinent, he had inscriptions added to this pillar. His watery glory is what these lines commemorate. They're just one among 33 verses composed in polished courtly Sanskrit, a form of writing called the Royal Eulogy or Prashasti. And about 1300 years after him, the Mughal Emperor Jahangir would also add his own Persian inscription to the pillar when he dominated the subcontinent. This episode isn't the story of the pillar. It's the story of Samudragupta's inscription on the pillar. What do these silent syllables on the soft sandstone tell us? Sure, they're the footprints, the traces of one of the Indian subcontinent's wealthiest and most militarily successful monarchs. But beyond that, they are also the footprints of one of the most spectacular cultural movements of human history, the evolution of Sanskrit. This is the story of how this ancient language of gods and priests transformed into the language of kings, courts and connoisseurs across half of Asia. I'm Anirudh Kanisetti. Welcome back to Echoes of India, a history podcast. This eulogy to Samudra Gupta on the pillar might not at first sight seem very interesting. Basically, it's like a permanent poster for a political party or leader that's been left behind for all posterity to read. And isn't that irritating considering it's election season? I can almost sense the boredom radiating off you as I sit here at my desk in Bangalore. But there's actually a lot that the inscription can tell us about the culture of North India in this time of endless political conflict, just as a modern political poster can tell you a lot about its creators and its audience. For example, though I call it Samudra Gupta's eulogy, it was actually composed by one of his Mahadandanayakas, or Great Lords of the Rod, a very senior general and judge, called Harishena. This brings up questions. Why on earth is a general writing about how awesome and glorious his boss was, and that too in the most polished courtly Sanskrit? There's more mysteries. In his inscription, Harishena, as you'd expect, spends an awful lot of time talking about Samadra Gupta's conquests, but he also speaks of his generosity, his piety, his intelligence, and especially the emperor's skill as a poet and musician. Surprisingly enough, despite his military background, Harishena does this pretty well, and he's actually a very capable poet. So when he publicly claims in his inscription that Samadra Gupta was even better at composing poetry than he was, and had earned the title of king among poets, you have to wonder why he's doing that. The answer to this question lies with another smartass who decided to appropriate some ancient Mauryan carvings to boast about himself. This was the Shaka ruler Rudradaman, who ruled Gujarat and parts of central India and Maharashtra in the 2nd century CE. But though the Maran inscription had been a local dialect of Prakrit, Rudradaman instead used a very different language to boast. You see, his deadly political rivals, the Satavahana dynasty of the Deccan, were writing almost exclusively in Prakrit, preserving Sanskrit for use mostly in religious rituals. 
and in their inscriptions the satavahanas used the properties of language to convey very potent ideas about power and kingship something we explored in great detail in season 1 of this podcast i won't go on too much about prakrit but here's a quick example of how that works a satavahana dowager queen described her son as he whose pure face resembles the lotus blown open by the rays of the sun in prakrit She uses the syllables to create a resounding sonorous effect that practically booms with power. Devasakara karave bodhita kamala vimala sadesa vadanasa. If any linguists are listening, I apologize for my pronunciation, but saying these fancy sounding words is so much fun that I'm absolutely going to keep doing it through this episode. So what did our friend Rudra Dhaman do? He was an Indo-Scythian. His ancestors were nomadic horse lords from Central Asia who migrated to the Indian subcontinent during a centuries-long wave of continuous movement between the regions. Compared to the native Satavahanas, his background is very unconventional, and that might have made him less worried about stuff like whether the sacred language Sanskrit could be used outside of a tightly controlled religious setting. And so, to set himself apart from them, he did something unprecedented. He had the inscription issued in Sanskrit instead. How scandalous that he used this sacred language to praise himself, right? The stuffy orthodox Brahmins of Ujjain, his capital, were not happy about these barbarians using Sanskrit at all. In fact, they even wrote a whole book of backdated prophecies talking about how in this evil age, these mlechas, these casteless outsiders, were absolute monsters and anti-nationals. I quote, Outcasts will perform sacrifices on the triple fire. with mantras embellished by the sacred sanskrit syllables the mlecha king will destroy the four social orders the shaka will destroy the good conduct of his citizens and their devotion to their proper tasks now the really conservative types may not have been fans of this new development but a lot of people definitely were You see, while native kings let orthodox Brahmins keep control of Sanskrit and use it exclusively as a language of ritual, it was these apparently foreign kings who encouraged other groups to experiment with it as well. They began to hire poets to write their eulogies and compose literary works dedicated to them to establish their political power. But in doing so, they made Sanskrit a prestigious language, not only of religion but also of the court. which began to open the floodgates to a whole host of new jobs and styles of creative expression sanskrit was no longer confined to stuffy concepts such as dharma divinely ordained duties but could also be opened up to artha wealth and kama erotic love all of a sudden if you could read write and compose good sanskrit you could enter an exclusive new economic club something like learning to code back in the 1980s and just like in the 20th century People in the second century were very happy to seize this chance to rise high and make their fortune. Though again, like the 1980s, it was generally the better off people who were able to get the most of it because they had the opportunities to take advantage of the new trend. These included the Buddhist monk Ashwaghosha, who wrote a remarkable epic poem about the life of the Buddha and is supposed to have served in the court of the powerful Kushana ruler Kanishka. Others included the final editors and compilers of texts such as the Arthashastra and the Kama Sutra, both Brahmins who lived in Central and North India respectively and were closely associated with these new courtly urban classes. As the Sanskritist Sheldon Pollock puts it, Shakas, Kushanas, and the intellectuals they patronized expanded the prestige economy of Sanskrit and turned it into an instrument of polity and the mastery of Sanskrit into a source of personal charisma. Personal charisma is the key here. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have noticed, but 21st century elites tend to pretend that they're nice, don't they? They have their charitable foundations, they go to fundraisers, they donate money to temples, they have stupendous fancy weddings for their daughters and sons, and also carefully livestream their reactions to seem relatable. Of course, I say they, but the fact that you and I are interacting through this English language podcast on our fancy smartphones means that we're probably part of the elite too. So how do we accept the fact that we're so privileged and others are not? We tell ourselves, this is the way the world is. Our grandfathers worked very hard to get our family wealthy. We deserve to be privileged because we're the best. We have refined tastes in terms of the art that we consume. We deserve to earn that money because you know this exclusive, prestigious language called Python or whatever. Now, something similar was happening in North India in the 3rd century. All of a sudden, you have a newly wealthy class of rulers and the intellectual class that work for them, all lording it over the miserable masses in the sweltering hot rice fields. And how do they explain their power? You guessed it. They said, Look here, we deserve to be this way because we're the best. Our grandfathers worked very hard. We're the most generous, we're the smartest, and we know the best words. As you can see, some things never change. Now, elites broadcast on social media, then elites broadcast on inscriptions carved on stone. And how? We saw Satavahana Queen use Prakrit to create a sonorous effect to praise her son. Now think about the fact that Samadra Gupta's courtier used Sanskrit to create similar sonorous effects to praise his boss. Here's just one example. Aneka Bhrashta Rajyotsanna Rajavamsa Pratishthapanodbhuta Nikila Bhuvana Vicharana Shanta Yashasaha he whose fame has tired itself with a journey over the whole world caused by the restoration of many fallen kingdoms and overthrown royal families. There's dozens of words like this in this one royal eulogy alone. Imagine an entire culture where inscriptions like this are read out in public occasions to cheers and the beating of drums, emulated by everyone from the most insignificant warlord to the most powerful of emperors, emulated by Samudra Gupta himself, a man whose treasury was swollen by his constant wars, a man who supposedly was rich enough to give away hundreds if not thousands of cows whenever he performed a spectacular public sacrifice. Every image you saw of him, whether on his remarkable gold coins or on some public occasion, was carefully maintained by a host of trained experts, including himself, of course. If you look at the commemorative coins which he issued for his Ashwamedha sacrifice, for example, he's called two things, Maharaja Dhiraja, Great King of Kings, and Ashwamedha Parakramaha, he who is powerful enough to perform the Ashwamedha. Sure, they are blatant reminders of his overwhelming military power, but even the words themselves, which would have been selected and set to a particular rhythmic meter by the Gupta court, seem to crackle with an energy and dynamism of their own, a result of the carefully categorized grammars and syllables and sounds of Sanskrit. Sanskrit allows you to create onomatopoeic sounds, a fancy term for words that sound like they mean, for the simple reason that the grammarians who codified this language deliberately set out to ensure that every syllable was clearly mapped to other meanings with clear etymologies. Take an example from the great poet and dramatist Kalidasa, who along with Harishena provided many of the descriptions we used in our last episode. When describing the ashes that fall from the body of the god Shiva as he dances, he uses the term Nrityabhinayakriyachitam, a word which, to quote the translator Hank Haifez, dances around the beats of ah and yeah, while the consonants of Kriyachitam seem to echo the very shaking loose of the dust. If you knew your Sanskrit, 
you could very literally make your audience hear and feel things music in the sounds essence in the syllables in absolutely unparalleled ways and in addition because of its association with kingship power and religion sanskrit had an allure like no other language it was far from the only language that was being spoken in ancient india prakrit was far from dead and there were varieties of it in the central ganga valley the eastern ganga valley gujarat and maharashtra even further south were speakers of dravidian languages like tamil even these distant kings perhaps still reeling from the sheer shock of samudragupta's invasion along with the prestige economy of sanskrit used it as a courtly language a language used to praise themselves to create great works of poetry and art this allure a language of power that's also beautiful is one of the reasons why the language spread so rapidly and widely as states and new rulers began to emerge across south and southeast asia Sanskrit gave them a whole system of knowledge in aesthetics and power that was invaluable in convincing people that they deserved to rule and that is exactly what a royal prashasti like Samudragupta's expresses so well so let's come back to this prashasti there's still one question that we haven't fully answered why was it so important for Harishena to refer to Samudragupta as a poet as a king among poets in fact in such a spectacularly hyperbolic way He stopped all impediments to great poetry by commanding the learned to enumerate its merits and he enjoys the kingdom of fame for his copious lucid poetry. This brings us back to the idea of beauty. As we can see, poets and grammarians and theoreticians and novelists across the subcontinent were constantly trying to define ideal qualities of various kinds of literature often under the patronage of royal courts such as Samudragupta's. To a man They endorsed the use of only 3 languages that supposedly had the grammatical and aesthetic features required to qualify for being used in a text. These are Sanskrit, Maharashtri Prakrit, the same splendid language used by the Satavahana queens, and Upper Bhramsha. All of these are languages that had standard registers, modes of speaking. For example, in a drama, you would see Sanskrit, the most beautiful and powerful language, being used by the most beautiful and powerful characters, kings, gods, heroes. you'd see prakrit being spoken by servants and sidekicks with a very coarse accent sounding beautiful meant that you were refined that you were superior that you were good the performance of being good as we saw is tied to the actuality of being powerful all this shows up perfectly in harishena's composition he speaks of samudragupta's military prowess but also his goodness and his power Ancient Indian kings were trained to have highly polished speech to be charming subtle erudite and sound good Samudragupta must have been one hell of a cruel charmer and he absolutely had to be given what he'd done basically conquered half of India in a single lifetime but why what was the point of it all what drove him well how would i know what we can guess at though from harishena's eulogy is a motivation that seems strikingly well human you see the constant references to samudragupta's fame which we started this episode with weren't just there to show off how self important the guptas were the reason why indian dynasties went to war isn't some great matter of principle the whole point of this complex intermingling of aesthetics and culture and ethics and politics and economics and art and militarism had such a simple human motivation behind it that it almost seems endearing in the chaos and brutality of a violent and forgetful time in the aftermath of devastating invasions from central asia when north india's dynasties rose and fell like grass 
kings just wanted as much glory as they could get their hands on just like us they wanted fame they wanted to be celebrities they wanted to be remembered to leave a trace no matter what the cost and though it doesn't absolve them you kind of get where they're coming from and because all these people were competing to loot each other and hire artists to praise them and create things that reflected their awesomeness that led to a blooming of sanskritic culture that has often led to this time being labeled a golden age but if you were actually living at the time you'd only agree if you happened to be born into an insulated court and were never expected to bear the exhausting burden that must have been trying to rule over all these crazy ambitious people all around you I could probably go on for another half hour about Sanskrit and all its different literary styles and what they can see about courtly culture but we'll come to that later in the season anyway so I'm going to leave you with a delightful little bit of trivia Sanskrit words have complex etymologies and you can split them up and interpret them in multiple ways so obviously ancient Indians had to show off how brilliant they were by using every conceivable literary device To quote Pollock again, Prashasti fully exploits the aesthetic resource and expressive possibilities of the Sanskrit language. So in a single verse, you can write about how a king like Shiva controls the Ganga river and humbled a great bull. But this could also be interpreted as how a king defeated a rival from the Ganga family and also defeated another king who had a bull as his royal banner. This is a literary form called a slesha. And over the centuries it would be developed to such an insane degree of perfection that poets could write books that told the story of the Ramayana if interpreted one way and the story of the Mahabharata if interpreted in another. Of course you had to be trained to recognize these things, but if you could recognize them in literature, you could recognize them anywhere. The Guptas would take this literary idea and do something stunning with it. They merged it with the absolutely thriving schools of Indian sculpture and art to create an unbelievable cocktail of astronomy, politics, religion, aesthetics and language. As for how they managed that, join us next week as we visit the ancient Gupta center of Udayagiri, the mountain of the dawn. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at @akanisetti that's a k a n i c t t i or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well at @ivmpodcast.